Amen. We come this morning to our sermon passage, and um, I sent this out in the weekly email. I posted it on social media. Um, this morning we're going to be talking about a, a sensitive topic. We're going to be talking about the story of Bathsheba. And there's no way to talk about the story of Bathsheba without talking about the reality of what happened to her. So this morning we're going to be talking about and touching on the reality of sexual assault and how the gospel applies to that. Um, I've said this in the, you know, we've been in this sermon series in the month of December where we're looking at the different mothers of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, there are five different women that are listed in the genealogy of Jesus. We get his family tree out the gate. And there's five different women which in the ancient world was unbelievable for a genealogy. Because genealogies were usually meant to show that you had a rightful claim to something. And like most of human history, inheritance or claims were passed down through the father. And so when you opened a genealogy, you usually just saw lists of men. This man beget this man, which of course a man can't beget anything without a woman. But, <laughs> um, but the remarkable thing when we look at Jesus' genealogy is there's a lot more going on than it just trying to prove that he's the rightful heir to the kingdom of Israel or Judah. That he's the rightful heir of King David in the Old Testament. And we know that because of some of the people that are listed in that genealogy. You know, at the time, the church was facing all kinds of different accusations. At the time the Gospel of Matthew was written, there were people saying that Jesus was not the rightful heir of David because he wasn't completely Jewish. Um, in fact, Jesus faced that accusation in his life and ministry. They said, you're a Samaritan, which was a, you know, like a cousin people to the Israelites. But they said, well, you're not pure enough blood. Um, you're mud blood. Um, and we can't, we can't trust you. You're not him. Or they would say, Jesus can't be the rightful king because I, we heard a rumor that he is the, um, the child from Mary having a relationship with a Roman centurion. All kinds of accusations. But when Jesus inspires Matthew to write this genealogy and the words that are written down, what we find there is not uh, Matthew or Jesus through Matthew uh, trying to defend himself by making up a genealogy. What we see there is actually shocking. There's people that are listed that are not Jewish. We talked about that weeks ago. Actually, most of these mothers of Jesus, aside from Mary, were not ethnically Jewish at all. We find names of men and women who did uh, terrible things. Names that if I was making a genealogy for you guys to try and prove like I, you should take me seriously, I'd leave, I'd leave the names out. I'd leave the stories out. I'd skip a couple of generations, maybe. But Jesus doesn't do that. And in the most shocking... One of the most shocking things in the ancient world, like I said, it lists five women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary, the mothers of Jesus. Last week we looked at Mary, so we kind of went out of order, but it was Christmas Eve, and so it made <laughs> far more sense. But this week, we're looking at this mother of Jesus, a woman named Bathsheba, to see her story and how God worked through her story and what it means for us to take seriously that Jesus on purpose entered into this family to call himself a grandson 
of Bathsheba. With that said, let's read our passage this morning. It's printed for you in your bulletin, Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 6. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that in it you show us, sometimes in shocking and unexpected ways, who you are and what you're about. And so you show us who we are in you and all the riches that are ours in the good news of the gospel. So I pray this morning as we look at this difficult story that you would move upon our hearts to show us the Lord Jesus, to show us what it means to see your grace at work in our graceless world, to see what it means to have your light shine into the darkness of our world, that we may love you all the more and find our story in you, find ourselves and who we are in you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> um, every 68 seconds, and this is just in the U.S., the statistic here, every 68 seconds, so roughly every minute, somebody in the United States is sexually assaulted. So we've been in this room for about 50 minutes, 40 minutes. That's 40 people. They have been sexually assaulted just in the United States. And nine out of every ten of those is a woman or a girl. And one in six American women in their lifetime has either been a victim of um, a, an attempted or completed rape. I could keep reading statistics. They're sobering. I sat in my computer and cried this week. I know this is uncomfortable. I know it is. I know it's probably not what usually gets mentioned in sermons. And my goal is not to shock or sensationalize these tragic statistics. Um, but my point is this. This happens, and it happens all the time. It's a reality of a lot of women's stories and men's stories too, and girls and boys. But for the most part, the stories of these things happening remain silent. They're not told. They're shoved away into a closet because we think they're shameful. Something happens to a woman or a girl or a man or a boy and it makes us, we don't like it and so we keep it silent. Or if it's happened to you, you don't talk about it. And I get it. A lot of people aren't safe with that kind of information. A lot of people are not safe with that kind of story. But the reality is, um, especially, let me say that, and especially in church. A lot of times church is the last place a topic like this is brought up because it is uncomfortable. Um, but that, that remains a sad thing to me. 
Because as these stories are not told, and these topics are not mentioned or talked about, even though they make us uncomfortable, what actually happens is we help the people that are committing these assaults. Because we're telling the people that have been abused that their story isn't something that can be mentioned. We're telling them that their story isn't something that we can bring uh, ourselves to, 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 to face, to see, to talk about, that it's shameful, and they shouldn't bring it up either. We're telling them that their story shouldn't be told or acknowledged, and what we do is we wind up heaping more shame on the shoulders of people who have been abused, shame they shouldn't have to carry at all, much less carry alone. But it's what we do. And it's a sad, it's, it's a devastating thing. You know, I just know in the reality of statistics between we in this room and the people that are online with us this morning and the people that will listen to this sermon later, that there are people under the sound of my voice right now that have been sexually abused. Maybe it was a long time ago. Maybe you've tried to forget it and downplay it. Maybe you felt like you could never tell anybody because in telling someone you will be cast off or shunned but I bring all of this up this morning even though it's uncomfortable even though I'm not a subject matter expert on this because the subject matter expert that I am I want you to know that all these stories are a profound wrong if it happened to you it's not your fault you did nothing wrong and you have nothing to apologize for I'm angry with you and I grieve with you but the good news is, is not just that I'm angry with you, it's that God is too. And that's part of the good news I have for you this morning as we're looking at the story and the life of Bathsheba. That God does not turn away from the darkest parts of our story and our experience. But that in Jesus He has come so that His story would be joined to ours. So that even the darkest and the things that are unmentionable, the things that have happened to us that we have shoved away into some dark corner so it can't hurt us anymore, that He has come to join His power and His grace and His healing and what He does to us so that that will not have the power that it has over us any longer. So that we will know ourselves not just as somebody who has been hurt and profoundly hurt by somebody else, but that we might know ourselves as a delighted in child of God so that He can heal us and lead us into freedom. This morning we're talking about a woman named Bathsheba. And Bathsheba was sexually assaulted, there's no other word for it, by the most powerful man she knew. King David. A woman who was treated as an object, who was used, a woman who was rendered voiceless and choiceless, a woman who when Jesus arrived and came into this world to redeem and save, God chose to be his great-great-great-grandmother, joining her story to his that a new ending might be written for it, that the evil and selfish intentions of the man who abused her would be overcome by the loving and saving intentions of God. Now you may have noticed when we met Matthew 1 that Bathsheba's name is actually not mentioned. It doesn't say Solomon whose mother was Bathsheba. It says Solomon. King David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
That's not because Matthew didn't think her name was important. What he was doing here was highlighting something else. So I've mentioned that genealogies work usually to establish that the person whose genealogy it was was the rightful heir of a claim. You know, I'm the rightful heir. If somebody came out tomorrow and said, I'm actually the rightful heir to the the throne of England, they would have to produce the records to show the descendant. And they are. That's usually what genealogies were in the ancient world, too. But part of what Matthew 1 shows us is that Jesus is this son of David. He is this descendant of David. But what it does as well is it shows us the reality of who David is so that we would know that Jesus is actually a different kind of king. So that we would not walk away from this and say, I'm so impressed that Jesus Christ is the son of David. The point of the genealogy is that we would be impressed with Jesus, not with David. So that we would not have a false impression of who King David is. Now if you flip through and you read through the Old Testament, David is one of the most prominent figures in all the Old Testament. And when we first meet him in Scripture, in 1 Samuel, he's a teenager, probably 12 or 13. He doesn't seem to be especially important. He's the youngest in this large family and he's in charge of the sheep. Yet God selects him. Unexpected David to be the king that will unify his people and lead them into an era of peace that they had never known. And he does exactly that. He's an incredible military leader. And he's a man, as it says, after God's own heart. David is a man who is profoundly committed to who God is when we meet him and when he first begins to rule. In fact, a good chunk of our psalms in the book of Psalms were written by David. And so in a very real way, the pen of David has led us in worship as we've read those psalms, as we've sung songs that are inspired by those psalms. So he's a big figure in the Old Testament. And this story, when you're first reading through it, it seems like nothing but triumph. Nothing but good. Here is a man that cares about what God cares about. Until we get... To 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here David has found a sense of military peace. He's no longer going out and leading the armies. He can stay back. He's built this beautiful palace for himself there in Jerusalem in his capital city. And here David is a middle-aged man. And he's been king for about a decade. He's the most powerful and the most important person that he knows. He's the most powerful and most important person in the entire kingdom. And he sent his army out to engage in battle without him. It's a note that the writer is supposed to get us like, what's going on? David's no longer going out to defend his people. He's sending folks to do it for him. Huh, this is a new thing. So the entire army is out of Jerusalem. And one evening he's at his palace by himself and he becomes a sort of peeping Tom. He spies on a woman named Bathsheba as she's bathing. The tub was on the roof. David goes out on his balcony and he notices her. She's beautiful. And he's overcome with lust for her. He sends to find out who she is. And he discovers that she's actually the wife of one of his most prominent soldiers in the army. David had what he called his mighty men And these were like the elite force for him. And Bathsheba 
is the wife of a man named Uriah, who was one of these uh, elite uh, special agents for him. But Uriah is off with the army. So nobody else is in the city. So what David does is he sends for her. He makes her come to his room. And it's remarkable in 2 Samuel 11, Bathsheba has no voice. She never speaks. Bathsheba has no uh, agency. Like she doesn't act. She doesn't speak. Only David speaks. He brings her in. He doesn't so much as talk to her in the passage. He takes her. And he uses her physically. She says no words. She has no voice. It is just David's desires running the ship. And he treats her like the object she is to him. He treats her not like a person. He treats her like a pretty thing for him to use. And he can do it because he's the king. But his uh, plans backfire here because she becomes pregnant. And now David has to figure out what to do. And so David begins scheming. Instead of owning up to what he's actually done, he has her husband Uriah sent back to the city. Because what he's thinking is if I, if I can have him sent back now, maybe they'll sleep together. She'll, and then it can be covered up. It'll look like this baby is Uriah's baby. But Uriah comes back and he refuses. He says, my brothers are out at the front lines. I'm not going to come back and enjoy my time back in the city and feast and go be with my wife. My brothers are out there. I should be with them. And so Uriah refuses. And when that plan fails, David's heart turns to great darkness, greater darkness still. And what he does is he has his general... This is all background, I promise it's important. He has his general put Uriah and some other forces close to this wall so that they will be killed. It's his cover-up plan. I'm going to make it look like it was a military action that went wrong. And what winds up happening is David has his general essentially sacrifice Uriah and all these other soldiers too just to cover up what he's done. And as soon as Uriah is dead, it says that David sent for Bathsheba and she became his wife. Again, she has no voice. It doesn't say that he went and spoke to her, proposed marriage to her, or anything like that. It just says he took her as his wife. Bathsheba was used by a powerful man, and in this, she's not unique. I'm not a woman, but I've been honored to walk beside women as friends and to know that Bathsheba's experience is far more common than we want to admit. Maybe not being seen by a king who's acting as a peeping Tom, but finding yourself voiceless and with no, uh, no course of action in front of you, being used at the whim of a man who's far more powerful Now, that doesn't make the particulars of this story any less important. And I'm not trying to say that this kind of thing happens to everybody, so that just is what it is. It's to point out that it happens and that it matters and that it's incredibly important to God. It's why when Jesus inspired Matthew to write his gospel, he didn't didn't inspire Matthew just to write this, Jesus, the descendant of King David this really important guy in the Old Testament. That's not what Matthew wrote, right? 
No, he had him write David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Jesus is just as much the descendant of Bathsheba who had been wronged and used. And he wants us to know it as much of a descendant of hers as he is of David who knew power and admiration in his life. And part of this is because he wants us to know and make it very clear that God did not put on flesh to dwell with us in Jesus in this world to be only for the powerful and the important. Only for the people who are impressive like a King David, who has a lot of trophies on his wall, who seems to have done a lot of things and left a lot of written record behind. Because yeah, King David was a unique man in history, but what happened to Bathsheba happened to a lot of women in human history. But God inscripturates it. He puts it in the Bible on purpose. So that we would know that He is the God of the forgotten too. He is not just here for the powerful who can do what they want. He's here for the voiceless. He's here for the people who have no course of action with them. The people who have been misused and wronged. God's heart is for the abused and the mistreated. It's one of the key things to see in the genealogy of Jesus. It's why he includes these women in this story. We walk through it. Do you remember the story of Tamar? It was a woman in an impossible situation who had been cast aside by her family. He is for the Rahabs of the world, who when God's grace came knocking on her door and the people of the spies sent into Jericho was a prostitute in a military outpost city. He's seeking that kind of woman out. He was there for Ruth, who was from the wrong background entirely. She was a Moabite, which is a completely different nation altogether from Israel. He's for the Bathshebas, voiceless, being used, being wronged. Jesus is the rightful heir of God's promises. He is the true king of God's kingdom. And his genealogy shows us what the Gospels go on to show us. If you keep reading the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus will not be a king like David. He will not be a king like the kings of this world. He will be a different kind of king. Yes, he's the son of David in the genealogy. But it is not going to be a case of like father, like son. It's not going to be a case of starting out good and going sideways like David does. It's going to be a case of our king coming for us. Obeying the father for us. Of always doing the right thing on our behalf. Here Jesus sits on his throne, but he does not stay back and let other people do the work for him. He doesn't sit back and look out and notice to take advantage. No, what our king does is he sees us in our trouble. He sees us in our peril. He sees us trapped and enslaved in sin. And what he does is seek us out for our good. He doesn't find us out to use us. He finds us to lift us up. Jesus has not committed wrong and needs to figure out a way to cover it up. No. Not at all. 
He has done all that is right, and He has given us the benefits of all that He has done by grace. This morning we've looked at just part of Bathsheba's story, because Bathsheba actually pops up later, 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2. It's the end of David's life. David's on his deathbed, and there's a big question of who is going to inherit the throne. David has a number of sons, and God has selected David's son Solomon, who is actually the youngest son in David's family. That's who David has designated to be his heir. But as David is on his deathbed, his older sons, who seem to be much more powerful and impressive, start grabbing for the throne. They start acting like their king. And they're going to try to get themselves crowned before Solomon can you know, step into to what has been designated as his. And here we meet a Bathsheba who is not voiceless. We meet a Bathsheba who is not actionless. We meet a Bathsheba who actually is the key human person who ensures that Solomon inherits the throne. This morning we've looked at just part of her story. But like I said, she did not remain voiceless. She was forced to marry David after everything happened with her husband being killed. And it's the last bit of him trying to cover up his sin. But when she's married to David, she finds an unexpected friend, an ally, a man named Nathan. Nathan was a prophet of God. And he was a guy... Who, in, in, our, in our thought, it would be like a special advisor to the president in our world. A right-hand man who could give him advice, who he could go to and ask, Am I off base here, Nathan? Now, obviously, David did not check with Nathan before he did the Bathsheba mess. But when she comes into this household, Nathan is the only voice that is willing to confront David. And Nathan doesn't pull punches. He confronts David. He calls him to repent for what he's done. And God speaks through Nathan, telling David that what he's done has been seen. That it's been evil in his eyes. That what David's wrong against Bathsheba, in truth, was more than that. It was, God, it was David despising God's promises. God does not say, through Nathan, boys will be boys. He doesn't say, that's just David being a man, and you know, a man has his desires and needs. No, God stands with Bathsheba and her dead husband, making it clear that God doesn't just sign checks uh, or, or cash checks that David writes, but what matters to God is how the king over his kingdom treats people. It's God choosing sides in a sense. He will not sign off on whatever the powerful want to do, but He dwells in His Word, as He says, He dwells with the humble. He opposes the proud. But as I said, Bathsheba does not remain voiceless. Years later, when there's this question of who's going to be the inheritor of this throne, and there's people grabbing after it, she reminds David, God has chosen Solomon. God has chosen Solomon. And she becomes the primary person acting and speaking on behalf of her son. It's a notable thing to go from a woman who was voiceless and used, first, second, or second Samuel 11, to the person acting to make sure God's purpose has happened in First Kings chapter 1. There's a boldness there that did not belong to her previously. And what I think it is, it is a boldness that was born in her because of God's 
intentions. Because of what God had promised. Oddly enough, because of what God had promised to David. Now that sounds odd, because David was the source of so much of her grief. He was a man who had used his power against her, and not just once. But if you look at what God promises to David, it's in 2 Samuel 7, before all of this happened, or 1 Chronicles 17. It's not so much a promise to David, but it's a promise that God will continue his work through David's descendants. But it's not necessarily God saying, David, you did so good, man. I'm giving you, I'm giving you everything. It is God making clear that he's continuing his work through a descendant of David. Making it clear that David's not the epitome of what God was doing. And in doing that, God makes sure in his kingdom, there's no good old days. There's not going to be a good old days in his kingdom. There's going to be a looking forward and hopeful anticipation that God will remain at work to bring his purposes about. That establishing David on this throne and this kingdom in the Middle East was not the epitome of God's intentions. That it was a step in the process. It was part of the growth of this oak tree that came from this seed of his promise to Abraham way back. And what God was going to continue to do was be faithful to his promises until again, as we sang earlier, the curse of sin is rolled back and his blessings are known as far as the curse of sin is found. Again, the no good old days. But it was, it was building in God's people a hopeful expectation that even if things grow dark and complicated, that God's not silent and He's not distant, that He is at work. And I think Bathsheba knew this. I think that's why she was emboldened at the time of David's death. Because God's grace meant that she didn't have to stay on the sidelines. It meant that what happened to her didn't have to become a cycle that God's grace could interrupt and make things new in her life. That the magnitude of God's love meant the voiceless could find a voice. That people sidelined in their own story could be led into action. That discovering God's commitment to His redeeming purpose can create within us courage. The courage of faith. Let me break that down a little bit more. In God's hands, the scars that you bear from other people hurting you, the long and dark histories of your past can find healing. And as you grow and grow more and more to realize that the most important truth about you is that you are loved by the God of the universe who in Jesus has removed every obstacle between you and His love, that's where we can find courage to speak and to act. Even when we have been greatly hurt and used. As we come to know that the sins of other people against us are real and they impact us, but at the end of the day they cannot define our worth. They don't have the final word as you know that your own sins against other people are real and worth apologizing for, but they can't have the final word about you either. Jesus does. This is the reason why Jesus came. Exactly what we celebrate at Christmas. The arrival of God into our world as one of us. In His life, He identified with us. He went to the dark 
corners of our experience facing rejection, facing ridicule, facing mockery, facing violence and abuse, and on His cross, stripped naked and exposed for all to see. But all of that was not Him being overcome by the darkness of our world. It was Him, the life and light of God, going to our darkness, that His light would shine into it to bring new life. So that in our world we would not despair even in the darkest in the deepest of our darknesses, that we would know that Jesus adds our story to His, and His story to ours, that we will know resurrection and new life as well. We sang about it in See What a Morning, that voice of Jesus spoken to Mary resounds through the years to us today to call us to life, this new creation, and we can know even clearer than Bathsheba knew the reality of God's story and what He's doing, and we can find our courage and our confidence in that, and we can find ourselves beginning to be healed by the scars of other people against us. In His life, in His death, in His resurrection, friends, He provides for us the greatest foundation for our hope. For in them we see God's purposes in clearest form. We see with clarity what Bathsheba would have only seen through hazy glasses. God's intentions for us are freedom, our healing, our grace. And so this morning, if you have experienced not just sexual assault, but if you've been used and misused by people, if you have felt like you've been sidelined and voiceless and without an option for action in your life, find your hope in Jesus And find in Him that courage to have a voice. Not just to speak up for yourself, but to speak up for others who are being wronged too. Find in Him the courage to act. Again, not just for yourself, but for other people too. And let's find our strength, our nourishment, our all in His love for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your kindness to us. I thank You that... The gospel means that there is nothing in the human experience that is unmentionable, that we can face it for what it is, not to celebrate it, but that its power for shame may be gutted. I thank you that you have worked, even in the life of a woman like Bathsheba, to demonstrate to us that you are not just for the powerful, but you are for the people who have been wronged, who may be overlooked. Lord, I thank you that your grace is for the humble and that you oppose the proud, that you make your dwelling with us entirely by grace so that we might find our identity, we might find our hope in you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.